you have a copy of God's Word this morning, I want to ask you to turn to the book of Acts chapter 4. The book of Acts chapter 4, we have been methodically walking through the book of Acts together. And today is going to be no different, I think, that in honor of my mother, who is uh, in the presence of Almighty God today, uh, I want to preach a gospel message that is just foundational to everything that we believe and everything that we are as Christians. And it just so happens that this passage of Scripture, as we've been marching through the book of Acts, falls from Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 12 today, which is one of the greatest passages of Scripture in, in the New Testament, not to, not to elevate any other passage above the other, but there's just some really good stuff in this passage in Acts chapter 4. Now, before we get started into Acts chapter 4, as you're making your way, finding your Bibles there, there was once a, a father who was trying to teach his son, who was a very introverted son. He, he didn't like to get out. He wasn't very talkative. He wasn't very good in social groups. And so the father said, I need to teach my son, you know, how to, how to get out there, how to put himself out there, how to learn how to deal with people and, and to get him out of his shell a little bit. And so the father, the son had reached the age, he was a little bit older as a teenager. And the father decided, he said, I'm going to try to get him a sales job. How many of you ever tried a sales job? Or some of you may be in in sales. It's, it's a tough job, right? And some of you may make a living selling things. It's not my forte, but this father had a friend, and his friend sold vacuum cleaners. And they weren't very good vacuum cleaners, by the way. If you're in here and you sell vacuum cleaners, there's nothing wrong with selling vacuum cleaners. But these particular vacuum cleaners were not very good, but he said, you know, this will be an opportunity summer job. My son's going to get some experience going door to door trying to sell vacuum cleaners. And the son was reluctant, but he went ahead and said, okay, I'll, I'll give it a try. And so he would go to the first house, knock on the door, door was shut. You go to the next house, knock on the door, hello, would you like to buy my vacuum? Door was shut. And this went on and on. And every once in a while, he would be able to get into the house and actually maybe give a presentation about these vacuum cleaners that he really knew were not very good vacuum cleaners. And over time, over the next week or so, the son just came home and he said, Dad, I just can't do it anymore. I cannot continue to face this kind of rejection. And the father's like, no, you're going to persevere. You've got to get through this. I'm trying to teach you a lesson. And the son said this, and it really resonated with the father. He says, Dad, how can I continue to go out and tell people about a product that I don't even believe in? I'm not going to continue to put myself out there to get the door slammed in my face and get rejected for something that I don't even believe in myself. And at that moment, the father knew. He said, you know what? He's right. How can I expect my son to go out there and be proud about something or to be excited about something or enthusiastic about something that he knew was a lousy product? It wasn't even something he believed in himself, so he definitely wasn't going to continue to put himself in that situation to face rejection over and over and over again. You say, well, what, what does that have to do with us? What kind of a story like that has to do with you and me today in Christ Church? When we look at Acts chapter 4, well, it really has everything to do with us because we are the very same. When it comes down to looking at statistical data and things like that, and when it comes to the church, data will show that right now this generation of Christians in this culture right now are the least evangelistic Christians that we've been in a very, very long time, simply meaning we're not sharing our faith. And I think that part of the problem is, is that, number one, let me make this very clear. We're not selling anything. Like, this isn't a sales job because the gospel is what? It's for free. 
The gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ, is a free gift. It's a free message. So we don't have to convince anybody. We don't have to persuade them or manipulate anybody. We're not trying to sell anything. But I think if we really get down to the heart as to why we as Christians are not being as evangelistic and going out and sharing the good news, risking rejection from other people, is because maybe deep, deep down in our hearts do we really believe in the message I can't really come up with any other reason why we would not be shouting the good news of Jesus Christ from the rooftops unless it was the very fact that deep, deep in our heart, we may just not believe it the way that we need to believe it. Because if we really believed in the message of Jesus Christ, the message that we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 4, I don't think there would be anything in this world that would keep us from opening our mouth and going to as many people as we possibly could, even if it meant getting the door slammed in our face. Peter and John here in Acts chapter 4 have a unique opportunity to either shut up and keep the peace and preserve their life or boldly proclaim the gospel, that the only gospel that they knew. And so if you look with me in Acts chapter 4, I want to share with you a message called No Other Name. Jesus, No Other Name. I'm going to read the first 12 verses in Acts 4, and I think we've got some really good things that we're going to get through in this passage together. And so in Acts 4... Luke is the author. He's writing. He says, now, now let me just set a little bit of the backdrop. Remember, the, the beggar by the gate, beautiful in Acts 3. They, he's miraculously healed. Peter and John share the gospel with him. He's jumping, leaping. The whole crowds are coming. They're saying, this is unbelievable. Only God could heal a man who's been crippled by birth, from birth. And then the, now the leaders are getting involved. So it has, it has caused such a ruckus and such a, 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 a big event in there in the city of Jerusalem that now the leadership, the spiritual leaders of Israel have to get involved because they know that something big is happening and they better quiet it or or, or quench it as soon as they possibly can. And so that's where we pick up here in Acts chapter 4. It says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Notice, they were annoyed. We'll get to that in a minute. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Now, remember, on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved on that day. And now here we are just a few chapters later. Another 2,000 people are added to the church. Look at verse uh, verse 5. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander... These are the big wigs. These are the most uh, powerful men in Israel and in Jerusalem at the time. And all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power and what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And look at verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Will you pray with me just a moment? Father, 
as we consider this passage, we consider the message that there is no other name but the name of Jesus, no greater name. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room would be able to walk away from here knowing that their life is built on the sure foundation of the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Lord, because everything else is sinking sand. And so, Lord, help us to build our lives on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. No matter who comes against us, no matter how much rejection we may face, help us to know and believe today that you are the sure foundation that we most desperately need. I pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Fascinating passage of Scripture. It's a couple of things that I think are very important before we kind of jump into some of our points is that the reality of this event in this instance here in the scripture is that Jesus Christ is the problem. He's the one causing all of the fuss. You know, the, these same rulers were likely the very same rulers who were very instrumental in putting Jesus to death on the cross. They were the ones who were trying to convince Pontius Pilate, this man needs to be crucified. They were the ones getting the crowds riled up to crucify Jesus. They thought that they had gotten, uh, they had done away with their biggest problem, Jesus. They thought, okay, all that is taken care of. All that is, is over now. We can move on with our own religious lives. And yet here we have Peter and John, and they're coming back, and they're preaching the very same message, this message of Jesus, and they were greatly annoyed. You can imagine. Man, we thought we dealt with this problem. We thought it was over with, and now these men, are they're still bringing this Jesus back up. What are we going to do about it? Jesus is causing a great fuss. He's causing a great commotion. And the fact that Peter and John were preaching the resurrection of the dead was even more troublesome to these religious leaders because, number one, they didn't even believe in the resurrection of the dead, and so that was an insult to them on that level. But more so than that, it was a threat to their power, and it was a threat to what they had done to Jesus earlier by putting him on the cross. So Jesus is causing this fuss. Now that's what all the fuss was about in Acts chapter 4. But let me tell you something today. Today is the very same. Jesus was causing fuss then. And let me tell you something. Jesus Christ in the name of Jesus is causing a great fuss today. Because the name of Jesus is the most polarizing name on the planet. And I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself today, but I'll just go ahead and say it this way. It is amazing to me that the name of Jesus is blasphemed the way that it is blasphemed in our culture. You don't hear any other historical or religious figure, we don't hear anybody else's name used in vain like that name of Jesus. Why? Because it's the name above all names. Because if the enemy, the devil, can do anything to diminish the name of Jesus, he will do it. He will ridicule it in the movies. He will ridicule it on television. He will use it in vain as much as he possibly can because that's his way of trying to lower and diminish the precious and wonderful name of Jesus Christ. It is a polarizing name. We're going to get more into that in just a minute. But we have this reality that Jesus just happened to be raised from the dead. And there's nothing that we can do about it. He is the risen Lord. He is the risen King. He lives today to give us life. He is the only Savior of the world. And so Peter and John understood this clearly, and they didn't have any choice but to preach and to speak in the name of Jesus Christ and to proclaim the resurrection of the dead. They didn't have a choice. And the reality for you and me today is that neither do we. So let me just give you four very, very basic but very important points that I think we can find from this passage that I hope will encourage you but maybe challenge you too to see where you are in your faith. The first one is simply this. The call to Jesus Christ is the call to evangelism. The call to Jesus Christ is the call to evangelism. What does evangelism mean? We, we, we are called evangelicals. If you, if, you, if you listen to 
popular culture and, and news and, and socioeconomic data and, and, and all the different social structures of our day, there's this group of people that have been put over here in a group within the church itself, and it's called evangelicals. Well, evangelicals are supposed to be defined as people who believe the Bible to be the truly inspired word of God. They preach salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, forgiveness of sin through the cross, the resurrection of the dead. We have a couple of common basic truths and essential doctrines that we all agree upon, but I want to get down to a little bit more of a practical level. What does it mean to be an evangelist? Well, the word evangelism simply means good news. Man, we got plenty of bad news out there, don't we? Just watch the 10 o'clock news. Lots of bad news out there. But thank God he has given us the great privilege to be evangelists because we have good news. Shouldn't we want to share good news when there's so much hopelessness and hate out there in the world today and yet we have been given this great message? Now, the minute that you came and you, if you were here today and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the minute you put your faith in Jesus, guess what? You became an evangelist. In other words, you were, you were given the great privilege and the great responsibility to be an announcer, a proclaimer, an ambassador, a herald of this good news. Now, if we look at the early church, and, and you, see these, you see this repeating in all of the sermons that Peter preaches, and we see Peter and John preaching these sermons early on in the book of Acts, all of these sermons, all of the messages, everything that they were about was about the good news they spent their time worshiping Jesus, teaching people about Jesus, preaching Jesus, sharing Jesus with other people. They had no other option to do that because that is exactly who they were. Their identity was in Jesus. Jesus was just flowing out of them everywhere that they went. Does that, does that describe you? Is your identity so much in Jesus that everybody that you meet and everybody that you know is just Jesus is just going to come out of you? Is he going to come out of me? Not just in the way that I live, but in the words that I speak. You see, these apostles, Peter and John, and, and of course the early church, they had a personal relationship with Jesus. They were witnesses of his death and his resurrection. And this is what's so key. Jesus Christ was real to them. I think one of the struggles that we have right now in the church, right now in this modern culture in 2018, is that sometimes I wonder if Jesus Christ is real to us. If he's so real to us that we have such an intimate personal relationship with him that we cannot help but share the good news of Jesus Christ. Christ, he was too good not to tell. That's what this whole passage is all about. Peter and John, regardless of the consequences, Jesus was just too good for them not to share who he was and what he had done. Is he too good not to tell others about his great love and his salvation? If it's not too good to tell, then why don't we tell it? Many of you may be familiar with a, uh, he, he's a, he's a pretty famous magician, his name is Penn Gillette, Penn and Teller. Anybody ever heard of Penn and Teller? They, they have a little magic trick they've done, a magic show that they've done for years and years and years, um, illusionists and those kind of things. But, but Penn Gillette has kind of crossed over from the entertainment business, and he's kind of entered into some of the, the dialogue of the day. And, and he is a, a, a renowned and, and unashamed atheist. This man says, there is no God. I don't believe in God. He, he has no apology about being an atheist. But listen to what Penn Gillette said. It's fascinating to me. There was a man that came up to Penn Gillette after one of their magic shows, and the man gave him a Bible and began to witness to him. But he did it in a way that was, it was kind, it was gentle, it was loving. He gave him a Bible. He told him what he believed, and he said, I want you to read this Bible. I want you to have this Bible. I want you to know how much Jesus Christ loves you. 
Listen to what Penn Jillette said about this incurrence. He said, I've always said, I don't respect people who don't proselytize. Now, this is, what he said. this is an atheist, and he says, I don't respect Christians who don't share the gospel. Why? He says, I don't respect that at all. If you believe there is a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? This is coming from an atheist. He understands. He said, how much do you have to hate someone to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? This is what he said. He said, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there comes a certain point that I will tackle you. This and this, talking about the gospel, is more important than that. You see, he understands the logic. He doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe in heaven. He doesn't believe in hell. But he understands at least enough to say, but if there were a heaven and if your gospel, your good news were true, he's saying, how much do you have to hate somebody not to tell them? That's fascinating to me. It would be like having the cure to cancer and sitting back and watching your neighbors and loved ones suffer and die of cancer and be afraid to tell them that you have the cure. But as he said, and as I said, this, this, what we're talking about, eternal life, somebody's eternal destiny, is so much more important than cancer. It's so much more important than physical death. We're talking about eternal destiny. So if we understand the implications of the gospel and what it really means and why we're not saying and opening our mouth and sharing the gospel, then the question is why? Why are we not sharing the gospel? Well, I think it leads us to our next point. The next point is that the reason that possibly some of us are not sharing the gospel, understanding the implications, is because the gospel is offensive. Did you know that? The gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive. It's offensive both to religious people and it's offensive to the most worldly rebellious people. The gospel of Jesus Christ is an offense. Turn your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 real quick. I want to show you what Paul has to say about the gospel. Now, Paul, we know, coming after Jesus, maybe the greatest evangelist missionary that the world has ever seen, he knew what it was like to be rejected, to be persecuted for sharing the gospel. He didn't care. He went into community after community and city after city. He had one thing on his mind. He was going to tell people about Jesus, come what may, whatever the cost. He knew the implications, and he lived it out. But look at what Paul said about the gospel. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians 1, I'm going to read verses 18 and following. Paul says this. He says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Look at what it says in verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness 
to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. What is Paul saying? He's saying, okay, to Jewish people who were at that time the most religious people, they, they had a, a, a one-way relationship with the one true God. They knew who the one true God was, and yet at the same time, when the gospel was presented to the Jewish people, it insulted them. It offended them. Why are the Sadducees and the chief priests and the leaders of Israel, why are they so offended and annoyed at Peter and John right here in Acts chapter 4? Because the gospel message threatened everything that they had ever believed about their way of life. See, they had built up and constructed for themselves a tradition, religious systems that, that they had control over. They had power over people. They had constructed these systems based on human traditions. And when Peter and John and people like Paul came and began to preach the cross of Jesus Christ, that by grace through faith you can be saved and made right with God, that salvation was a free gift, it wasn't something that you work for. It's not, amount, it's not about the amount of religious activities that you do. It's not about how much tithing you give at the temple. It's not about what kind of good deeds you can do to earn your way or work your way to heaven. No, all of that stuff comes to be emptiness and nothingness at the foot of the cross. Because the gospel message says, no, there's nothing that you can do. There's no amount of good works that you can conjure up to make yourself right with God. The Jewish people hated to hear that. Because they were teaching about salvation through some type of works, through some type of keeping the law, through some type of man's tradition. And it was very, very difficult for them to hear that it offended them. It annoyed them. It insulted them to hear the gospel. But what about non-religious people? What about people who don't have anything to do with God? Rebellious people, God-hating people, people that just don't even want to have anything to do with God whatsoever. Do you know what the cross of Christ is? It's absurd. It's foolishness. So have you ever had that experience? you ever been trying to share your faith or maybe you open up a religious conversation with somebody and they make it very clear on the front end, they're like Penn Jillette, I don't, want, I don't have anything to do with God, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in your book. They will laugh at you and they will mock at you and they will call you a fool and an idiot because you believe some type of foolishness like a God died on the cross. What's that all about? It's foolishness to them. It's an absurdity to them because they cannot wrap their minds around the grace of God. And number one, really at the heart of the matter is that they do not want to admit that they are accountable to a holy God. It always comes back to our own sin and our own God's judgment on that sin and our own accountability to a holy God. The gospel is an offensive message. You can't remove the reality of sin, the reality of God's judgment from the gospel message because the good news that we can be saved from sin, that we can be saved from the judgment of God, that we can be cleansed and restored into a relationship with God, all of that is predicated upon the bad news. All of that, hear me, the good news is always predicated on the bad news. You have to understand where you stand in your own sinfulness before God before you can be able to appreciate the grace of God he's offering to you through his son, Jesus Christ, who died in your place on the cross. But let me tell you something. Before I knew Jesus, I didn't want to hear it. I didn't want anybody to tell me that I was a sinner. I thought I was a pretty good guy. 
I thought I had things in control. I thought everything was going well in my life. I mean, hey, I, I didn't really hurt anybody. I didn't really go out of my way to do anything terrible. I mean, yeah, I had my own sin, my own secret struggles, and all those kind of things. But in my own mind, this is where we are as, sin, as sinners when we're separated from God. We think that we're so much better off than what we really are. But the gospel message comes to us and says, no, you're not. You're in big trouble because all have sinned and fall short of the glory. No one is righteous, no, not even one, that we all are under the, the judgment of God. And unless we put our trust in Jesus Christ who died for us in our place for our sin, we will be condemned. Amen. You see, the, the good news is always predicated on the bad news. That's why I want to remind you that our gospel message is offensive. It is insulting to people. And to some people, it is just complete foolishness. And they don't want to hear it. Now the flip side to that, you ever heard the old saying, don't kill the messenger? Well, we are the what? We're the messengers. I didn't create the gospel. This isn't my idea. I didn't come up with this story. This is the truth. This is historical fact. This is historical truth. This is the word of God. This is God's story. This is God's good news. All we are are simple mail carriers. We are simple messengers. And so here's what happens. This is why we get ourselves into so much trouble, I think, by trying to keep the peace, not, not ruffle any feathers. We don't want to offend anybody. It's simply because we carry a message that to the world, the religious and non-religious alike, is very insulting and can be very offending. And so by default, since we carry that message and we proclaim that message, then we also are an offense. Because so many times people are going to associate the message with whom? With the messenger. And therefore, it's not just the message of God that they are rejecting, but now who are they rejecting? They're rejecting you and me, and now it gets personal, right? We want to be like that little boy going out on his first sales job. We don't want any doors slammed in our face. We don't want anybody to be mad at us or offended by us. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We don't want to offend anybody. That's where it really gets down to the struggle that we have as Christians carrying a message that is offensive and then we being associated with that message. And if you're not aware of this, it's so very clear what's happened in our culture as well. And again, you have to be careful. This comes through music and media and movies and, and all of the entertainment and all of the information, school systems, uh, education systems, college systems. We have been socially conditioned, socially conditioned to believe that the very worst sin that we can commit is to offend somebody. Let me say that again. We have been socially conditioned. Okay, here's the big word. It's a T word. The greatest virtue, let me, let me look at it from a positive perspective. We have been socially conditioned to believe that the greatest virtue that any of us can have is the virtue of what? Tolerance. If you're going to be any type of a progressive person in the world today, you've got to be what? You've got to be tolerant. You've got to be tolerant of other people's beliefs. You've got to be tolerant of other people's actions. You've got to be tolerant of other people's lifestyles. Isn't it funny that tolerance is the greatest virtue and that we're all expected to be tolerant, but tolerance stops at the door of the church? Because nobody wants to be tolerant of us. 
The world doesn't want to be tolerant of our beliefs. The world doesn't want to be accepting of what we have to say and the message that we have to share because we're, we're cut out of that. No, you guys are bigots. You guys are too judgmental. You guys don't, don't get to be part of the discussion. Everybody else, we're going we're gonna to get along with each other, but no, you're cut out. So it's, it's a double standard. Everybody expects us to be tolerant of them, but yet, yet they don't want to be what? They don't want to be tolerant of us. See, we don't get the same privileges and, and, and rights in the social community. That's a problem. But here's what's happened. Because of this, this idea that the worst thing you can do is offend somebody, you see, we have come to the point that we care more what godless men think of us than what God thinks of us. Let me say that again. We have come to the point where we begin to care more what a godless culture thinks about us than what God himself thinks about us. Think about that for just a second. There's no other reason why I know that we wouldn't open our mouth and share the gospel unless we cared more about pleasing man, men that don't even really care about us anyway, than we do pleasing who? Pleasing God himself, who cares infinitely about us. So as long as we keep the peace and we don't offend somebody and we're, we're not labeled and crucified in the court of public opinion, everything will just be okay. We don't want to be labeled offensive, a Jesus freak. Instead of us embracing the reality of the Christian life, the reality that Jesus himself said, that blessed are those who persecute you for my name's sake. The reality that Paul said, if anybody chooses to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, he will be persecuted. The reality that Jesus in the New Testament repeatedly over and over and over reminds us that if we choose to walk the life of Christ, we must be willing to take up our cross and deny ourselves and follow after him, which inevitably will lead us into situations where we will be rejected and hated and persecuted and suffer for the sake of Christ. That is what we need to understand on the front end. This is part of the Christian experience. We will be rejected. It's part of it. We need to get it out of our heads, get it out of our minds like we're something terrible to the world, and we need to be willing to embrace and wear this badge of honor and say, okay, maybe I am a Jesus freak, but I love you too much to not share the gospel with you. You may hate me. You may reject me. You may slam the door in my face, but if you're going to go to hell and you want to reject Jesus Christ, you're going to have to crawl over me to get there. That's the kind of an attitude that we need to re-embrace as Christians. But we're becoming so passive and so silent and so quiet in our culture because we think that we're offending somebody and that's the worst possible thing that we can do. No, the worst possible thing that we can do is remain silent and keep our mouths shut and watch as people just continually run away from God and reject God and end up spending an eternity separated from God because we wouldn't open our mouths and tell them about Jesus. Amen. That's the worst thing that we can do. Peter and John knew this. Let me take it a step further. If that isn't bad enough, we know the gospel is offensive. We know that's part of it. But number three is, is that the gospel message is the power of God and the salvation for all who hear and believe. Don't miss this in Acts chapter 4. You see, Peter and John, yes, they're arrested. Yes, they're persecuted. Yes, they are taken to task by the religious leaders of the day. But don't miss this. How many people get saved that day? 2,000 people get saved. Why? 
Because they heard the message. It said right there, they heard the message of the gospel. They put their faith, they believed in Jesus Christ, they trusted him, and 2,000 people were saved that day. Don't you think Peter and John, as they're in the prison cell waiting there overnight to see what their, the, the rulers were going to say to them the next day, don't you know they said, praise God Almighty, I'll, I'll spend the rest of my life in prison if it means 2,000 people got to know Jesus today. Now, I don't know how many of us is, are going to experience 2,000 people getting saved under one message, but let me ask you this. Is being rejected or offending somebody or being persecuted, is it worth one person? Is it worth one? What if just through your, your, your willingness and obedience to share the gospel, and let's say it's just like I keep referring to this sales job. It's not a sales but in sales, they tell you, you've got you to talk to at least 10 people usually just to get one person to buy anything. Well, what if we just took that approach? Hey, I'm willing to talk to 10 people about Jesus, and nine of them may slam the door in my face, and they may tell me all kind of names, and they may cuss me up and down. But that one person's what? It's worth it. Amen. It's worth it. Because their eternal destiny can be changed simply because they hear and believe the gospel. Until we open our mouths and verbally share the message of the gospel, we will not experience the power of God to save sinners. Let me say that again. Listen to me. Unless we open our what? Now listen, there's a lot of talk in our culture today, and especially among church, church circles, and this is, this is a term you may have heard. It's called lifestyle evangelism. How many of you have ever heard lifestyle evangelism? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Let me tell you what lifestyle, lifestyle evangelism is simply this. A lot of people say because of this idea that we've been conditioned to believe that we can't offend anybody and we're supposed to be tolerant of everybody else's lifestyles and those kind of things, that as Christians, we don't have to, t we don't have to actually beat anybody over the head with the Bible because it's this idea, you know, that old, that old uh, Southern Baptist idea that you take a Bible and you, if you beat them over the head enough, like they're finally going to get it, Right? Like, none of us really believe that's the way to approach evangelism. We're not beating anybody over the head with the Bible. And so because of this idea, there's been this, this new movement called lifestyle evangelism. And let me just simply tell you the, what, what, it, what it means. It means this, that people, as they watch the way that you live your life as a Christian, they'll get saved. Now, I have a lot to say about that, but let me say this first. The idea that we don't have to share the gospel, open our mouth, and actually communicate the, the message of the gospel, but simply that by other people witnessing the way that we live, they'll want to be saved or they will be saved. Now, should our lifestyle represent the character of Jesus Christ? You can say amen. Should our actions be consistent with the love of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. That's part of lifestyle evangelism. People should see the gospel in action so that they know that we care before they care about what we have to say. I agree with that 100%. But lifestyle evangelism in and of itself is not enough. It is not enough. And let me tell you why. Number one, Jesus never told us to go out and just practice what? Lifestyle evangelism. No, Jesus says, go in all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them everything that I have commanded you 
to do. Jesus knew, and clearly throughout all of the scriptures, when it talks about evangelism, evangelism by definition is that we open up our what? We open up our mouth and communicate a message. Now, our lifestyle should be consistent with that message, but here's one of the biggest problems that I have with that. If somebody is going to be dependent on getting saved by simply looking at my lifestyle, good luck. Seriously. Because you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to let you down. I'm going to slip up. I'm going to have a bad attitude one day. I'm going to speak out of place one day. And if people are just depending on how I live my life day in and day out in order for them to get saved, guess what, people? They're not going to get saved. Now, my life should be a living testimony of what Jesus Christ has done for me. But do you know how people get saved? Do you know the normal way that God saves people? The regular way, his design, his plan, his way, his system is that when we as God's people open up our mouth and share the good news of Jesus Christ, they hear it with their ears. The message of Christ resonates in their heart and in their head. And at that moment, they are willing to come to to grips with who they are, who God is, that they need Jesus and they can put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's the way God designed it. It's not my plan. It's his plan. Lifestyle evangelism is desperately lacking. Because here's another problem with lifestyle evangelism. I think many reasons why we don't open up our mouth and share the gospel is because we think that our lives don't match up to Jesus Christ. Anybody else there? I've heard this so many times. You know what? I would go out there and share the gospel with my neighbors, but they know who I really am. They see me for who I really am. I'm, just, I'm, I'm not a good enough Christian to share the gospel with them. I've heard that so many times. It's not about you. It's not about that. It's about the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's about us being willing to proclaim and open up our mouth and share the good news of Jesus Christ, what he's done for you, in spite of the fact that we are sinners, in spite of the fact that we do lack in so many areas of our life. That's what it's all about. None of us are good enough. Only Jesus is good enough. And so don't let any of that prevent you or inhibit you from opening up your mouth and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul says this, Romans 10, listen to this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on whom they've never heard? Key, listen to this. Paul is saying, how can somebody believe in Jesus that they've never what? Heard about him. Paul didn't say, how can they believe in Jesus unless they've ever seen your lifestyle evangelism? Paul says this. He says, how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. If people are going to put faith in Jesus Christ, their faith must come from what? Hearing. Not the way that you live your life. It's time for us to stop walking around 
keeping our mouth shut, it's time for us to open up our mouth and realize there is the power. The Bible says, the God, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it, what? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. That tells me that this message that we have been given to open up our mouths and share and proclaim, it is the power of God for salvation. And if we're not experiencing the power of God to save people, then guess what? We're not opening our mouth. It's very simple. If you've lived your Christian life for 20, 30, 40 years and nobody's ever come to faith in Jesus Christ through your witness, your testimony, you're not opening your mouth. I'm not opening my mouth as much as I should open my mouth. Don't, don't take this as a, as a chastisement on you. It is, it is, a, it is a, a chastisement on the entire church, on every one of us. i got to wrap this up. Here's your last message, last point. The gospel message is an exclusive message. There's only one way to God. This flies in the face of everything that you hear right now in contemporary culture. Contemporary culture, many paths lead to, lead to God. As long as you sincerely believe what you believe, and you've you found your happy place, and you're ha taking your happy path in life, and you're a good person, and you try to just be a good person, keep on taking your path, because one day all these paths, they're just all leading up this mountain, and we'll all meet up in heaven one day and find God together. That's conventional wisdom. Hinduism, one path. Evolution and science, naturalistic means is another path. Buddhism and Islam is another path. Maybe you've come up with your own religion. Maybe you just want to be, you don't want to be any religion. You're just finding your way. You're taking your own path. And that's the idea. The conventional wisdom says we're all on these paths. And yeah, Christianity can be one of those paths too. But when we all get to heaven, we all get to God, we're all going to be there. We're all going to be in one happy place. You know what the gospel says? The gospel says you're stuck at the bottom of a mountain and you're dying and there's no way you're going to get up to God. You can't even walk. You're on the ground, barely breathing. You're dying. If you got to get up to the mountain on your own, guess what? It ain't going to happen. So you know what the gospel says? God did what? He came down the mountain. Jesus Christ left the glories of heaven, left the, the prerogatives of being God in heaven. And he said, I'm going to have to come to you. I'm coming to earth. I'm taking on flesh so that I can show you the way and die for you and give you life and be raised from the dead. That's the only way that any of us are ever going to be saved. It's not about what path we're taking to heaven. It's about the path that God made for us by coming to earth. That's the God. You see how completely different the gospel message is compared to the other religions of the world? Every other religion of the world is trying to teach you that you can work your way or earn your way somehow on the way up to heaven. The gospel says, no, there's nothing you can do. That's why I had to come to you to save you. I had to come rescue you. That's why the gospel is exclusive. Now, exclusive means that it's not open for everybody in the sense that not everybody's going to be saved. Only those who put their faith in trust in Jesus Christ. Now, part of the gospel is all-inclusive. In, in other words, that Jesus is offering this salvation to who? To everybody. It's, it's for the whole world. But at the end of the day, we know that not everybody's going to believe. Because if you don't come to God on his terms, then you're not going to be saved. 
We can't define the terms of salvation. Only God can define the terms of salvation. And so part of the gospel is an exclusive message that if you want to be saved and you want to be right with God and you want to spend eternity in heaven with God, you've got to come to God on his terms. Three, three quick things and we're going to finish. Jesus Christ is the only sure foundation. What are you building your life on today? What are you building your life on today? There are so many different foundations out there, different religious groups. Some people build their life on science alone. Some people build their life on church attendance. Some people, look, this is a big one. Some people build their life on their parents or their grandparents' faith. Did you know that faith is not transferable? Do you know that? I hear people all the time, I talk to them about Jesus, and they say, you know, my mama, she's a, she's a faithful Christian. My grandparents have been in church their whole life. Well, what about you? You think mama and grandmama are going to get you to heaven? That's not the way it works. I share with you a little bit about my mother uh, before the service starts. My mother, she went to be with Jesus. Uh, it was been, it's been uh, 17 years ago. She loved Jesus her, her life was a testimony of Jesus. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that she is in the presence of the Lord. She put her faith in Jesus. She believed the gospel. My mom's not getting me into heaven. It doesn't work that way. Some of us are putting our faith and building our foundation on a good family heritage. It doesn't work that way. Some of us are putting our, building our foundation on, on that we're just a good person. We're just, we have a good moral foundation. We think we're a good person or we think we're self-righteous, or, or whatever it may be. Here's the reality. Jesus Christ is the only sure foundation. Amen. He is that chief cornerstone. Jesus Christ in this message of salvation endures forever. It transcends time. It transcends culture. It transcends place. It transcends history. It transcends everything about this life because it is the only one sure foundation. Number two, Jesus Christ is the name above all names. I really struggle when people talk generically about God. Now, what do, you, what do I mean by that, Brother Marcus? What, we want to talk about God, right? Well, let me just ask you this. When I say the word God, who do you think of? Now, if you're raised in church and if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ and I say the word God to you, most of you are going to go straight to the one true God, the creator of the universe, Jesus Christ our Lord, right? Is that what everybody else out there thinks about God? It's not. God to some people may be a completely different God to you. When we just generically use the name God in our conversation, because see, again, that's one of the things we've been conditioned. We're not going to offend anybody if we just say God. But oh, wait a minute. What if we use the name what? Jesus Christ. If you look at somebody in their eyes and you say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, they automatically know where you stand. They don't have to question what kind of a God does he believe or who is this God that he's talking about. No, you tell them straightforward, right up, I believe in Jesus Christ. He is my Lord and Savior. I put my faith in him and I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. All of a sudden, those people know where you stand because the name of Jesus Christ is polarizing. It either draws people to them or what? Or pushes them away. That's the name of Jesus. But the Bible says that there is no other name in heaven or on earth given to men by which we must be saved. And finally, Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. Jesus Christ 
is the only way to the Father. I find it fascinating that Peter says this. He says in Acts 4, he says, And there's, no, there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Can I tell you something today? You must be saved. We must be saved. It's not a suggestion. We need Jesus. It's not something that's left up for debate. Peter's saying we all are sinners falling short of the glory of God. You must be saved if you're going to spend eternity in heaven. And there's only one way to get there through Jesus Christ. And there's only one name under heaven by which you must be saved. And there's only one way to the Father, and it's through the Son, Jesus Christ. We must be saved. Back in 2012, Joel Osteen was interviewed by Oprah Winfrey. And I've watched this interview several times. And and Joel is on a big stage, right? Regardless of what you think about Joel Osteen, what kind of a teacher he is, preacher that he is, it's undeniable that he draws a big crowd. He has a huge audience. And I can remember when this happened. It actually happened on Larry King even before he met with Oprah Winfrey. But he met with Oprah Winfrey, and she was going to put him to task. She was going to press him a little bit. And listen to what she said. She said, Joel, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God? And I'm sitting there thinking, this is your opportunity. Man, if you're speaking on behalf of the church, you're speaking on behalf of the gospel, this is your slam dunk opportunity for you to look Oprah Winfrey on the biggest stage in her eyes and say, absolutely, Jesus Christ is the only way to God, period. Man, Joel didn't do that, though. He kind of squirmed and he said, well, well, Oprah, I believe Jesus is is the only way to God. But, But, you know, there's many paths to Jesus. Oh, I'm not, I'm not here to, to condemn Joel Osteen. I don't know Joel Osteen's heart. But I know that he is one of the biggest spokesmen of the Christian church today, and he had the biggest stage to, to, to just knock it out of the park, slam dunk, home run. Here it is, your chance to say Jesus Christ is the only way, and he, and he squirmished. He, he, he didn't quite nail it, and he, and he started to, to skirt around the issue. With, and you know why? Because he doesn't want to what? Don't want to offend anybody. Don't want to offend anybody. Think about the danger in what he just communicated. Well, okay, Jesus is the only way to God, but there's many paths to Jesus. Oh, well, what if I'm a church of Scientology or a Buddhist? Maybe that's one of the paths to who? To Jesus. What if I'm a Muslim? They talk about Jesus. Maybe that's one of the paths to Jesus. What if I just want to create my own path and it's one of the paths that's going to eventually get me to Jesus one day and I'll be in heaven? Y'all see the danger in that? And that's exactly how the devil will take just a little bit of a half-truth, make it into a whole truth, and then it becomes an untruth. I get that from Adrian Rogers, by the way. You just take a little bit of a a half-truth, you try to make it the whole truth, and all of a sudden it becomes a lie. You see, guys, we live in such a a critical time right now where we have to be so unashamed to proclaim the gospel. Who cares what people think about us anymore? If we really love them, we're going to share the gospel with them. So what if you get the door slammed in your face or you get to to wear that label of being a Jesus freak or you're one of those religious people that when people see you coming, they go a-running? May that be our testimony. What if that was your testimony? Would you be ashamed of that? I wouldn't. 
I don't want to be more like you. But we have been dumbed down and numbed down and conditioned to believe that we just can't offend anybody anymore. And the worst thing that you can do is offend somebody by sharing this message. Guess what, guys? It's offensive, but at the same time, it's the what? It's the power of God and the salvation. So at the same time that it may be offending one person, the next person may be getting saved. And at the end of the day, that's all that matters. I'm going to ask our worship team to come on up. And here's your application for the day. What do you do with a message like this, a heavy message on Mother's Day? I got two questions for you. Are you like the little boy who's going out trying to sell something that he doesn't believe in? Maybe deep, deep in your heart, you just don't really believe in the gospel message. And if that's where you are, you're not going to share it. You're not going to risk rejection because of it. But if you do believe the gospel message today, if you're in this room today and you're a Christian, you're born again, you have a relationship with Jesus, and you know that Jesus has saved you, and you know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and you know that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, and you know all of these things, and you do answer the first question in the affirmative, yes, I believe the gospel message, then if you do, when is the last time you shared? the good news to an unbeliever. Church, when is the last time you shared this news to somebody else? It's not just your responsibility, my responsibility. It's our divine purpose. You don't have any other reason or purpose to live another second on the face of this earth than to share the good news. Nobody's going to get to heaven and say, man, I wish I hadn't spent so much time sharing the gospel with people. Nobody's going to regret sharing the gospel and spending our time sharing the gospel with people. But many of us are going to get to heaven to see the glory of God and everything that that means. And you know what we're going to say? Man, I sure hate that I was afraid to offend somebody. I sure hate that I spent too much time doing this and doing that and chasing this and chasing that. And I did not spend more time sharing the gospel. Will you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, there may be some in this room today that have never heard the gospel or received it. There may be some in this room today who have put their faith and trust in so many other foundations, but they realize at the end, Lord, it's all empty and sinking sand. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here today that wants to put, put their trust in you for the very first time, that they would not let anything stop them, that they, they would not feel any sense of embarrassment or being ashamed or being... Um, Lord, allowing anybody, what anybody else thinks to affect their decision, Lord. But, and they can, they can trust you right where they are. I know that, Lord. But if, it, if it's something that you're drawing people to make this public, that, that they need to pray with somebody, they need to talk with somebody, maybe they need counsel, Lord, I pray that this would be a time where you could deal with them in a way that meets their needs and, and ministers to their heart. And for the rest of us, Lord, who are here, and are your children and are your witnesses. 
God, give us a special measure of your power this week to be unashamed and, and to just, just to get over all of the stigma and stereotypes of offending people, Lord, and to love people enough to really consider the implications of what happens to those who die without Christ, that we would really live our lives in light of that, Lord, and that we would share the good news of Jesus Christ, even just sharing what God has done in our life. Lord, you've given every one of us a testimony, and maybe that is, that is what you use this week as we open our mouth and we share the good news, that we live our lives in a way that proves that we really believe what we claim to believe. Have mercy on us, God. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.